Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. I am Amy Rojic, Director of BDO Center for Governance, and I'm so happy to have the chance to sit down with Trish Ulrich to discuss how boards are helping make corporate initiatives focused around diversity, equity, and inclusion successful and how board self-assessments and refreshment efforts are further lending both support to DEI and providing broader protections for the company. So Trish is the Audit Committee Chair for the Federal Home Loan Bank Board. She has also previously served as the Audit Committee Chair for Pepco Holdings, a Fortune 500 electric utility sold to Exelon in 2016, and USAT Technologies, Inc., a small cap software and payment systems business. She has deep experience in accounting, auditing, risk management, and cybersecurity. And Trish is also a member of the NACD New Jersey Board. She co-chairs the Philadelphia Chapter for Women Corporate Directors and is a member of the Gupta Governance Institute Advisory Board. So Trish, welcome to BDO in the boardroom. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. I'm very happy to have you back. Trish and I have done some programming over the years, and she never disappoints with sharing her knowledge. So want to welcome you and we're in the midst of a significant change where more and more women are being invited into the boardroom. Women on Boards 2020 just had their annual celebration and recognized that 22.6% of seats held by directors in the Russell 3000 index are now occupied by women, surpassing the goal of 20% by 2020 and they now have their sights on parity in achieving 50% women occupied board seats. However, we further note that the Russell 3000 is only a portion of the thousands of public companies in the United States where the numbers are not even close to 20%, let alone the parity goal of 50%. Even in the Russell 3000, only 5% of the companies have actually achieved parity. So lots of work still to be done in reaching board parity in terms of gender. And this is just speaking, again, about gender on the board. So on December 1st, interestingly enough, the SEC I'm sorry, NASDAQ has filed a proposal with the SEC to adopt new listing rules related to board diversity and disclosure. And if approved, the new listing rules would require all NASDAQ companies to publicly disclose consistent, transparent diversity statistics regarding their board of directors. And additionally, the rules would require most NASDAQ listed companies to to have or explain why they don't have at least two diverse directors, which includes one, who may self-identify as female, and one who self-identifies as either an underrepresented minority or an LGBTQ. So with that, we add this to the recent spotlight on systemic racism, which has companies emphasizing their values on diversity and equality, but some critics are saying they want to see the action. So that's a lot. (laughs) As an active board member, Trish, Can you share with us a bit of your board's approach to building diversity among corporate board directors and other stakeholders, such as suppliers, vendors, and employees? 
Sure. Um, first of all, the FHLB uh, is highly regulated. It's part of the banking system and the capital market system. And as such, we have very specific diversity and inclusion rules, and we have an annual diversity and inclusion audit um, that is which the results are reported publicly. So, you know, we we kind of I, I hate to say it's not like we didn't want to focus on diversity, but we didn't have a choice. We really had to, to focus on it. So I'm kind of proud of some of the things that um, our board has done. Um, typically, when you talk about diversity, you talk about it in three pillars, the pillar of opportunity, the pillar of equality, the pillar of equity. So opportunity it, to kind of give you a visual here. Opportunity opens the door to say all people are welcome. But that alone doesn't ensure that the, that the right people walk through the door. Equality starts to recognize that there are not equal representative numbers of people of color or gender walking through those open doors. And it recognizes the need for more targeted invitations to those we want to walk through the opportunity door. And I'll give you some examples of those things in a minute. And equity acknowledges that not everyone starts from the same point to seize these opportunities. Sometimes we define opportunities in a way that excludes minorities and may need to change criteria to be able to attract the minority candidates or minority suppliers or minority uh, customers, whomever the stakeholder. So for example, one of the, the most typical criteria for a board member is prior CEO or senior management team. Now, how many, um, ethnic uh, CEOs do we have? You know, if you look in the Fortune 500, we probably have two African-American CEOs in all of the Fortune 500. So sometimes you need to change those definitions of what the what you're looking, the criteria you're looking for for that opportunity in order to um, to uh, attract those minorities. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that as well in a minute. So when we speak of board intentionality and board actions, um, there's typically three dimensions to address. And when I say board intentionality and board actions, that's going beyond the numbers, beyond, you know, reporting how many people we have in each of the ethnic categories and, you know, basically reporting out uh, kind of the, the old um, government way of, of reporting. It's actually being intentional in ensuring you get the proper candidates and making sure that they're successful. And the three dimensions are people, meaning the board, the C-suite, employees, customers, philanthropy, meaning what are we doing from a board perspective to support the community and ensuring diversity thrives? And there is this resource uh, of people uh, in the future. And procurement, what is the board asking of their management teams in terms of ensuring diverse vendors and suppliers? So this aspect of diversity is oftentimes overlooked, and it's actually one of the areas um, that I'll talk about uh, that the FHLB has done a great job. So diversity can also be articulated in terms of the actions a company takes, such as banks lending policies, uh, utility companies shutoff policies. I previously, as, as you mentioned, I previously sat on the um, board for Pepco Holdings, which is the big uh, electric utility in the DC area. Uh, as well as up here in New Jersey and Delaware and Maryland. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have to look at what your policies are uh, relating to things like shutoff uh, for the underprivileged. Um, the FHLB, being a, a GSE, uh, does not do philanthropy activities. 
Um, but an example of philanthropy activities might be GlaxoSmithKline, uh, another pre a previous employer of mine, um, uh, actually has collaborated here in the Philadelphia area with a, a group of educational nonprofits to, um, to create uh, uh, opportunities for the underprivileged to get training in um, STEM, STEM training. Okay, and education. So I think one of the things when you look at diversity, it keeps coming up over and over again is education is at the at the root of change there. So that's why I mention it, even though uh, at the FHLB, we don't do a lot in philanthropy because we're GSC, so we're not donating to anybody. But uh, it is a very important area um, in the areas of people at the FHLB. All our slates for both board positions and management and staff positions are required to have some diverse candidates. On the board, we have five independent board members. Um, three are women and one is an African-American man. So the majority of the independents are considered diverse. Um, and for the management positions, we have one African-American woman on the management team and one Chinese Asian person. Um, but there's room for improvement, and that is constantly recognized. As for staff, our biggest challenge is the Hispanic community. So that's the, the piece that I want to talk about, because as we've gone through these audits, and, you know, and I might also uh, give a shout out to my diversity officer, because our most recent diversity audit, we had absolutely no findings, which is like a miracle. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> So, um, but but it, we have recognized that we need um, we need to be more intentional in the Hispanic community. So our diversity officer, um, who has to report that uh, report our numbers based on the not just you know minority but minorities broken down between African American, Hispanic, Asian, and male, female. Um, actually is spending some time getting involved in Hispanic community organizations to try to identify how to source uh, more candidates. Now, the DC, Virginia area isn't known for a lot of Hispanic uh, communities, you know, uh, a large Hispanic community, but there is opportunity there. And so, so he is He's doing the intentional act. And what I want to emphasize is it's intentional of going beyond just, you know, what you normally do to recruit. He's before positions are even open. He's out there trying to find out how we can uh, raise the awareness in the Hispanic community as to our organization. Um, so it's not just good enough to open the door um, and let a diverse candidate walk through. Sometimes you need to help them along to ensure they're they're comfortable in the environment that they're working in and competing in. Um, a good example of this, and I, I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I, I shared this example because he shared it in a large group. Um, Ken Frazier, the CEO of Merck and one of like two black CEOs in the Fortune 500. He spoke to our women corporate directors on the topic of diversity a few months back. And he said he was intentionally recruited to Merck by the then CEO to be mentored and primed as the future CEO. And he recognizes that without that specific help and intentionality and constant mentoring of the CEO, um, he may never being him being a CEO of a Fortune 500 may never have been a reality for him. 
So he's a big supporter of helping diverse candidates be successful once they arrive. So mentoring is a big, uh, a big piece of this. On the procurement side, um, I can give you an example of this in the FHLB. First, I have to explain a little bit about what we do. So the FHLB is a system of banks across the region. And then the Office of Finance, which is the board that I sit in, we do all the debt issuance for the entire FHLB system. We issue $30 billion to $100 billion of debt a day to support the banking environment with emphasis on housing and mortgages. We're the second largest debt issuer in the world, second only to the U.S. Treasury. And we use dealers to do the debt issuance. So we, we don't issue debt directly to an investor, but the dealer is the intermediary. And most of our dealers are large banks like J.P. Morgan Chase. And in an effort to broaden our dealers to diverse dealers, we made very intentional efforts first to identify diverse dealers. In this case, it included veterans in, in, in addition to ethnicities. Um, and there are certain requirements to be a dealer, including the size of your balance sheet and your liquidity. And the FHLB found that most diverse dealers, because they were so much smaller than these big banks, could not meet our high level of standards, which quite frankly were set in place for those larger banks. So the FHLB intentionally reviewed those participating criteria and adjusted them within safety guidelines for the dealers to participate. Then they also gave some concessions on the fees associated with the debt issuance. All in all, we, we worked very hard first to identify um, potential diverse dealers, but also to rearrange the working parameters so it could work for them and work for us. So today I'm proud to say 30% of our dealers are diverse dealers. And that's in a very complicated environment, right? So if we can do it, I know anyone can do it with their, with their vendors. Um, but it took us several years working through these processes to get there and a lot of intentionality. So the diversity standards a company is held to internally or externally is really totally dependent on the industry, the regulators, the company's values. But one piece of advice uh, you know, I would like to give board members is to make sure whatever you publish in your external reports is your stance on diversity, that you live up to that in reality inside the organization. Now, I think that's an excellent point and excellent examples. And I think the the actions your company is taking to really push that not only through the ranks of your, your hiring practices and your retention practices, but actually enabling your customer base to expand, I think is really um, something that a lot of companies are just starting to embrace and think about. So I, I appreciate your comments. So one of the areas I wanted to touch on is the legal environment in the US, because that's been evolving. And, and as you know, it's been spurred by California's legislation to have at least a minimum of one woman on the board as of the end of 2019. And now we're looking at two to three female directors by the end of 2021 for boards than five or six members, respectively, if they're domiciled headquartered in California. This year, California also passed a similar law with respect to requiring ethnic diversity on the board. So I guess, how has the legal environment in the U.S. impacted diversity discussions in the boardroom and on board slates? Yeah, first of all, California set up their gender mandate law, which was SBA 26 in 2018. 
and as you noted, recently issued their first report on compliance, and now AB 979, uh, which requires um, at least one director as an individual who self-identifies as Black, African-American, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander, Native American, Native Hawaiian, or Alaska, Alaskan Native, um, and, or who self-identifies as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. Okay, so that's that you're seeing that starting to surface. Um, New Jersey, just to give you kind of a feel for the landscape here, New Jersey brought a gender parity bill forward a couple of years ago, but it still hasn't been signed or yet. Illinois, Washington, New York are example of states that also have gender mandates at the state level. Um, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Colorado have passed bills that encourage gender parity at the board level, but it's an encouragement. Uh, Massachusetts, uh, Hawaii, and Ohio are also considering mandates with Hawaii and Ohio requiring mandatory reporting. So right now it's kind of like all over the map regarding the state mandates. Um, and of course, the institutional shareholders look at diversity of the board members in their investment decision-making and proxy voting activities, as does SSI and Glass-Lewis in their advisory role. And you mentioned the NASDAQ proposal to the SEC, and the SEC has also been increasing its reporting requirements on board diversity. And this is a very interesting announcement. Um, and, you know, the goal of that proposal that you mentioned is to provide stakeholders with a better understanding of the company's current board composition and enhance investor confidence that all listed companies are considering diversity in the context of selecting directors, either by including, as you said, at least two diverse directors on their board or explaining the rationale for not meeting that objective. Um, and part of their rationale for these new requirements is uh, they did an analysis over two dozen studies that found an association between diverse boards and better financial performance and corporate performance. Okay. So what all these laws do is they put pressure on boards to truly rethink their processes around establishing diversity, seeking qualified candidates for open board roles. They may, may need to seek independent assessment of their board recruitment processes just to protect themselves. And I think we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, and they, they need to move beyond just traditional search firms and, and sometimes seek additional sources for qualified individuals that, you know, have the needed skills or the something else, whether it be gender, ethnicity or whatever. And there's many boutique uh, search firms that have these networks in, in the different um, groupings that you can that you can use. These laws not only put pressure on the boards to ensure they are diverse, these laws expose board members to derivative lawsuits for diversity in action and um, shareholder activism. It also exposes you to shareholder act activism. So, um, you know, the, the, the new trend in diversity in action derivative lawsuits has begun in 2020. And um, it started with a firm in California named Botini and Botini. Um, and they filed shareholder derivative lawsuits claiming boards falsely stated their mission supporting diversity. In other words, uh, what they were reporting and what you saw were two different things. So they're, they're by no means the only firm bringing these lawsuits forward now. Others across the country are following suit. Boards being sued include The Gap, Oracle, Facebook, Qualcomm, uh, Norton LifeLock, just to name a few. Um, and the lawsuits primarily relate to underrepresented communities as opposed to gender. 
And um, they are based on companies that report a commitment to diversity, yet their senior management teams and board directors are largely white males with maybe one female, but little if any underrepresented communities. And they are caremark claims of breach of good effort. Um, and, um, you know, they address issues including lack of monitoring, reporting, training, whatever. Now, thank you for that. I think it's, you know, it's definitely becoming much more of a conversation in the boardroom and it's much more becoming a conversation or a request for education in this space. I mean, the things you've just rattled off, it's almost impossible to keep up with in terms of the ongoing changes in rules and regulations and what's being considered. And then you have, you know, the added scrutiny by ISS and Glass-Lewis and other, you know, investors that are making a lot of noise about having diversity, whether it's BlackRock or Vanguard or whomever. It's, you know, it, it is out there. So I guess when thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion through an ESG lens, so environmental social governance, extending beyond gender to ethnicity, race, age, what are some of the thoughts that you might share about corporate reporting? Well, I think um, companies need to be intentional in their in their diversity efforts um, and fundamentally include it in their strategies, in their value statements, and in their management objectives that affect bonuses. I think they need to be able to report what they're doing, not what their intention is, right? What they have actually done. And... Um, I, I think it's it's really important now where they report this, obviously some of these trends like the NASDAQ trend for reporting in that NASDAQ proposal, they have a standard chart that they that are a standard you know uh, set of information and it looks very nice in a chart that um, they expect everyone to report the same way. So when you see that chart in the in the um, 10 10k or 10q, or proxy statement, wherever it's going to show up, it's it's the same chart and everyone can easily relate between companies. So, um, but I think the most important thing is that, that you can report how you're being accountable in this space and what progress you've made. I mean, no one expects anyone to go out um, and overnight these things are just going to change. I mean, even with the NASDAQ proposal, I think it's up to four years before the, after it's approved before they expect um, you to have the full, the full compliance. Um, but you have to be able to report that you're making some progress. Agreed. So, so let's pick up on that. You know, we, we were talking about the highly regulated, regulated and litigious environment that we were in. We're also seeing case after case of injustice coming to the forefront and fueling anger and unrest among our citizens. So, so what do companies and their boards need to focus on to demonstrate the meaningful progress you were just talking about in terms of building a diverse workforce and equitable treatment for all employees? So what should companies and boards look out for as potential landmines here? Right. And um, so I'm going to give you some advice, which is from me personally, some advice that um, I have heard from folks like uh, Marsh McLennan, who are DNO uh, liability advisors, um, as well as some legal folks I've heard. So I've kind of this is my bailiwick here that I've I've accumulated over the past uh, past year or so. Um, and and the most important thing is that while annual reporting is nice, 
what's really most important is people are looking for making meaningful shifts in that board composition and um, enabling diversity at all levels, including through the ranks of management. So some way of reporting how you're making progress, not again, what your aspirations are. Um, Now is the time I think to do self-assessment of your board and your management composition, Um, audits of your board recruitment practices in particular, um, and your plans for future recruitment, potentially using board governance experts to help and give you that independent, fresh look. Um, And I've heard some of the lawyers say the simplest things may keep you out of the worst trouble. And when I say lawyers, um, you know, I talked about the diverse, the derivative lawsuits that are starting for diversity in action. Okay. And having served on boards where there have been derivative, anytime you sell a company, there's derivative lawsuits, right? So I know what it feels like to get a, to get your personal name on a derivative lawsuit. And the first thing you do is pick up the phone and call your DNO insurance provider because they're going to pay for the legal fees and they're going to help any settlements that come out of it, help pay for that. So, um, so, you know, the, the, this whole business of derivative lawsuits is part of a bigger trend of event driven complaints. So, you know, you've got the whole cyber me too COVID and this just, this whole diversity now is falling into the same, same type of uh, derivative lawsuit as such, anybody who sits on a board who has looked at their DNL premiums for the last year realizes they have just skyrocketed. Okay. Um, and I've been told by some of the March Marsh representatives that underwriters are now asking about the composition of the board and the board refreshment practices before they will quote you, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a fee or a cost. So, Boards need to make sure they're building their relationships with their DNO insurers um, because they're underwriting risk. You're a risk, and the better they know you, the harder it is for you to raise your premiums. Um, but insure, but you need to make sure that you and your insurer understand the legal regulations your company must comply with. Um, early notification to a DNO insurer when a claim comes in is highly recommended by Marsh. Um, Carrier selection is more important than ever. One of the things that I've experienced is if you move, if you change carriers, you could end up with gaps in coverage periods. And you know, again, derivative lawsuits are lawsuits personally against the board members. So you really want to make sure this insurance is in place. It's the only thing you have to protect you. Um, and it's not good enough to just have candidates on a slate. Uh, metrics reported need to have further, you know, accountability that's actionable and the board sets the tone for that. Um, Again, now is the time to do an audit for your diversity practices in general, including board recruitment practices, hiring practices, supplier vendor diversity practices, doing that kind of independent audit of your practices and shoring them up because it's now become a liability for board members, quite frankly. Well said, well said. And I think uh, on that last point you just made, I think even you can even add to that list is onboarding your board members, because I think too often, you know, we we hear of boards wanting to expand their slate and welcome diversity on the board where they have not 
previously had any. And sometimes there's an adjustment there and there needs to be a, a conscientious, and I'll use your words, intentional onboarding process for those new members, not only to you know make them feel welcome, but truly to assimilate them into the boardroom. Because again, it's, you know, a lot of companies in my experience have gone from an all-male board that have known each other for decades to suddenly opening the doors and inviting either younger generational folks into the room, women into the room, other ethnicities into the room. And it's a different experience altogether. And to make sure that there's communication and good discussion that requires an adjustment period so and just part of that onboarding process is also setting up a mentoring you know so when you're coming on a board as a new board it's just like being a new employee right i mean so it's it's the same concept of being intentional to make sure that that person's going to be successful exactly Exactly. Well, Trish, I really appreciate your comments today. Hope you'll consider coming back and, and sharing more of, of this journey of diversity that you've experienced. And uh, love talking to you. And I want to wish you and your family and our listeners a wonderful holiday season, because hopefully we're going to release this just prior to the holidays. Well, thank you, Amy. And um, I wish you and your listeners a happy holiday as well and a healthy holiday. Yes. Amen. (laughs) Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit BDO.com slash BDO Knows Governance.